This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's pray. Father, we're all here gathered together. Lord, very expectant of the things that you're going to show us great and, and wondrous things out of your law, out of your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. We're going to cover the verses here from 7 to 13. 7 to 13. That's going to be what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's pray. Oh, we already prayed. Okay, let's read. I don't know. It's a routine. I can't get over it. Okay. All right. Okay. Verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which has gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Okay, now in our last lesson, you remember, in our last study here, we were, especially in verse six was a key verse there, that the Lord touched on a subject which was the subject of offending offenses, and it's particularly a little one, a little one, a child. And this is an important subject for the Lord that he's decided to park here 
and go more deeply into the subject of offenses. The Greek word offense, it can mean several things, but where he's talking about right now, he's really speaking about anything that blocks or creates an obstacle for a person coming to God, for a person coming to Christ. An offense is, is what causes a person to turn away from God, to turn away from God, because he thinks that God is wrong. It's wrong what God, a common offense, very offense, is when a person is offended at God, just like my, a person I spoke with named Juan recently, and he told me that his father was killed on a highway down in Mexico when he was a boy, and consequently, Juan, since that time, has been offended at God for allowing his dad to be killed. So now, in verse 7, the Lord explains to us something about offenses that he wants us to know. He says in verse 7, it must be that offenses come. Now, this translation can throw us off a little bit when it says it must be that offenses come because it really has the meaning behind it of offenses are inevitable. Not that he's creating offenses, yeah, you have to have them. He's really meaning here, offenses are inevitable. And in this, the New American Standard did a good job. Offenses are inevitable because the Lord said that this because he wants us to be warned. He's giving us a warning. He's telling us to be on your guard, be on your guard. By saying this in, in verse 7, that offenses are inevitable, he's saying that you will have things happen in your life where you're going to find yourself at a crossroads. And on one end, on one side, one road, it's crossroads, might as well have a sign over that says, God should not allow that to have happened. He should not allow that to have happened. This is very, very common for the Holocaust survivors, for the children especially of the Holocaust, especially in Israel, where, it, where they take the position, God should not allow that to happen, so I will return to him an insult of God doesn't exist. Okay. The other road is the road that has the words of Job marked on it, Job 13, 15, Job 13, 15, where Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So in verse 7, the Lord is talking about offenses, and he's saying they're inevitable. He wants you to understand that. And it's in so much, when he says this, in the offenses are inevitable, he's really saying that it's not a question of if an offense will come. It's a question of when the offense will come, and I need to be prepared. Several things that can happen to a person when an offense comes, and he gives kind of a list there in Daniel 11.35, Daniel 11.35, where Daniel says, and some of them of understanding shall fall, and then he goes on and says, to try them, to purge, to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it's yet for a time appointed. So when he says, well, some will fall, some will die, some will die in there, and what happens to them? That's Stephen. That's the martyr Stephen. He says that someone's going to be to try them. Some will resist the temptation and not fall into sin and will become stronger for it. Paul spoke about his experience this way. And then he says, and to purge, and some will be purged. Judas Iscariot was purged. And then he says, and some will fall into sin, but they'll repent They'll be washed from their sin. They'll be as white as snow as King David was after his sin with Bathsheba. They'll be the, they will recover. Just like uh, the person I was talking to yesterday, Michael, and we were talking, and he said that, you know, he talked about his ex-wife. And I said, your ex-wife, what happened? What happened to your marriage? 
I said, did she leave? He says, no, I did. He says, I messed around with women and my wife uh, divorced me. And then she married somebody else, so he couldn't go back to her. But the point was that he said that now he was a Christian. And now he was walking with God and the women that he was now uh, dating where he has a policy, they have policy, hands off each other. So he became white, he became washed, and that's that what also had happens. Now, the Lord says that for a world that stands, for those who stand unguarded from the coming offenses, for people who are unprepared to stand against the offenses, Christ has one simple word, and that word is woe. Woe. Woe to the person who thinks that this world is harmless to the follower of Christ. This is so greatly puts it, they hymn entitled, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It really sets out a question in this hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And the question is, is this vile world a friend of grace to help me onto God? After all, we would not have to live our lives on guard or on alert if only the devil was not the prince of this world. We wouldn't have to live on guard if only the devil was not subtle and trying to destroy us at every turn. We wouldn't have to live on guard if only the devil didn't have an army of able demons with orders to destroy us. We wouldn't have to, to live on guard if only we weren't weak and vulnerable and certainly no match for the devil, for the demons. We wouldn't have to live on guard if only we didn't have a sinful heart. We didn't have a heart inside of us betraying us at every step. We wouldn't have to live on guard if we didn't live in an evil world full of sin. We wouldn't have to live on guard if this world wasn't dangerous, full of traps to sin. Uh, yeah, apart from all those only ifs, the world is a very safe place. No reason to be on guard. No reason to live like a fireman ready for the first alert of danger. So the Lord gives in verse 7 a very strong woe unto this world. For the person that's not on his guard, it's the hymn so wonderfully puts it, my soul be on thy guard, my soul be on thy guard. 10,000 foes arise, and hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. Oh, watch and fight and pray. The battle never give up. Renew it boldly every day and help divine implore nor think the victory won, nor once at ease sit down. Thine arduous work will not be done till thou hast got the crown. See, all those only ifs, everything's against us. You can't really drive a person to depression, to a sad depression, you know. But we have a safety. We have one safety, and that will make us, that enables us to become an overcomer in life and not be destroyed. And that safety is one word, it's one word that we have, and Jude used this word in the beginning of his book, and it's the word preserve, Jude 1.1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus, preserved in Jesus Christ, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So our safety is to be preserved in Jesus Christ. And the reason we're preserved in Jesus Christ is because that's what the Father wants. As Christ said in John 6, 39, John 6, 39, this is the Father's will which has sent me of all which has they've given me, I should lose nothing, lose nothing, raise it up at the last day. We're preserved in Jesus Christ, not because of our bone power. It's not because of our power, but it's because of the power of God. As it says in, in 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See that word kept in 1 Peter 1.5, kept by the power of God. It's the word that's used for a sentinel who stands watch at the gate of a city. God preserves us by standing guard over us to preserve us. And the reason we're preserved in Christ is because Jesus Christ is praying to the Father for just that purpose right now. He ever lives to make intercession for us. We know what he's praying. When you read John 17, you see what he is praying. John 17, 11. John 17, 11 says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. None of them is lost. Three times he uses this word kept, kept. Kept, preserve, preserve, preserve. 15, John 17, 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. And even in the point where, where everyone may abandon us, Paul prayed, or Paul said rather, in, to Timothy, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 16. 2 Timothy 4 16, he says, At my first answer, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. I pray God it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord shall deliver me out of every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. So our goal, what we have to do is keep ourselves in Christ Jesus. Keep ourselves in Jesus Christ. We are preserved in Jesus Christ. And the way we do that is to make ourselves love the Bible, to make ourselves love the Bible. Jesus said in verse seven of this chapter, verse seven, woe unto the world because of offenses. But Psalm 119, 165 says, Psalm 119, 165 says, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. Nothing will keep them back from God. So very vitally important. And now the Lord speaks of letting nothing offend us when he goes, when he says in verse eight and verse eight and nine of this chapter about cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot and plucking out the eye. Now, again, offense is anything that keeps us back from God. So here the Lord is talking about something very dear to us. I mean, a hand, you know, and a foot. We have a limited number of them, you know, in the eye. And so he says, you know, he's not advocating cutting off hands and feet, That's but this is like a Middle Eastern way of expressing a truth. A Middle Eastern way of expressing a truth would be like to, to say that, that, you know, a hand or a foot or an eye is very important to you, and following Christ and not letting anything come between you is more important, more important. For example, Abraham lived in a country that was idolatrous. Abraham's father and his family were idolaters. They had idols. And therefore, God called Abraham in Genesis 12.1. Genesis 12.1, God said, the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I'll show thee. So Abraham's idolatrous country, Abraham's idolatrous people, 
Abraham's idolatrous family stood between him and God. It stood between him and God. So God calls Abraham to leave his country and his people and his family to go to God. And for Abraham, leaving his country, leaving his people, leaving his father is like cutting off his hand. It's like cutting off his hand, cutting off his foot, plucking out his eye, because that stood between him and God if he didn't do it. And Abraham did it. So he said, okay, it's more important to follow God. Similarly, when Abraham was tried by God, and God told Abraham in Genesis 22.1, Genesis 22.1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, behold, here am I. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains I'll tell you about. So Abraham to sacrifice his son, we use that term, I might as well get my right hand off before that. That was like asking him to give his hand, his foot, his eye. But he went ahead, but God stopped him and said, now I know you love me. Same with Moses. Moses, Moses was living, he was the prince of Egypt. He was slated to become the Pharaoh. He was gonna be the ruler. Yeah, you lived to the palace. The palace was paint the palace pleasures, paint the palace security, the strongest nation on earth. And he was the man. And when God called him to leave it, it was like, might as well as call him, you cut off your right hand. But Abraham says, I won't be trapped in, by sin here, and he did it. Now the Lord is still on the subject of little children that he had started in verse three, when he said that, in verse three, he said that we all need to be converted, we all need to become like little children if we have any hope of getting into heaven. That's what he said in verse three. And now he continues with this theme, with this idea of little children in verse 10. In verse 10, when he said, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. So he says, don't despise the little one. Don't despise the little one. But, and he gives a reason why. You know, don't say to the little one, beat it, brat. Don't do that. He says, don't despise them. He gives a reason for doing that. He gives a reason. In verse 10, he says, I say unto you, he says that in heaven, their angels are looking constantly at the face of God. That's news to us. Who knew that? Who knew that? Who knows what's going on in heaven? Much less this. And the issue is who can tell us about what's going on in heaven? Not man, but who can better tell us about what happens in heaven than the Lord who said about himself in John 3, 13, when he was talking to Nicodemus, John 3, 13, he says, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. So here in verse 10, the Lord Jesus is telling us about heaven. We had no clue about this. Who knew? Little children have their own angels. Who knew? We didn't know that. We didn't know any of these details. I mean, you know, verse 10, their angels. I mean, that means that God has assigned specific angels to be angels for specific little children. Who knew that? But God has assigned his angels to be angels for little children. And what are they doing, these angels? What are they doing? He said, well, we're not exactly sure. We know from Hebrews that they're sent to be ministering spirits to minister to those who be the heir of salvation. We don't know. But from the context of what he says, it looks like those angels for those little ones are in a state of communication with the Father about the little ones. Because from the context, the Lord is warning in the first part of this verse, don't despise the little ones because their angels are looking at the face of the Father. So from verse 10, it's flowing 
the warning is flowing to give a reason for that warning to not despise the little one because the angels are in such close contact with the father. They're always looking at the face of the father. It means that an angel for maybe reporting to the father said, my little one that I'm responsible for, father, there's somebody despising that little one. And the Lord's saying, don't risk it. Don't risk despising a little one because it's not worth the risk of having that little one's angel bring that report to the father. And why would a person despise a little one? Well, they're weak and they're, they're, they're most vulnerable. And so Christ tells us that the angels for the little ones are always beholding the face of the Father. That means that those angels are not just seeing the Father's face from time to time or when they happen to come into the presence of God. It means that they're always looking at the Father's face, like Esther. For example, we think about Esther. Esther only saw the face of the king, her husband, King Ahasuerus, when she went in and was allowed to come into the king Ahasuerus's presence. But these angels are seeing the face of the father nonstop from verse 10. The other angels do always behold the face of the father. That means the father spends a lot of time with those, those angels. And you ask the question, who does the father choose to spend a lot of time with? Well, he chooses to spend a lot of time with those who have involved themselves in what he's involved with. For example, Let's just picture that you're a contractor, you're a construction person, and you're focused on this building has got to get built there. It's the construction of the building. That's what your interest is. That's what you're doing. And that's what you're absorbed with, how this building is coming along. So if someone comes along and starts to take up your time and starts talking about, you know, he just got back from Tahiti and he wants to go on and on about his, how wonderful his vacation was in Tahiti, you don't have time for him because you're not going to spend your time with that person because what you're focused on is this building, not about Tahiti. And you don't have time to talk to somebody about their beautiful vacation in Tahiti. But if someone comes along and wants to talk to you about the progress of the construction of the building, you got all the time in the world to talk to him. See, for the father, these angels are always in the presence of the face of the father. It means that these angels are focused on what the father is focused on, which is his little children and their journey to God. So the term seeing the face of the king, it has a special meaning, seeing the face of the king. For example, again, back in the book of Esther, it gives a list of people's names who saw the face of the king, King Ahasuerus in Esther 1.14. Esther 1.14, it says, and next unto him was, and here's a list, Karshana, Shetar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face. That's what it says. Which saw the king's face and which sat at the first in the kingdom. See, these are the men who are said to have seen the king's face. And the reason these men saw the king's face, the king Ahasuerus' face, was so that they could, it wasn't so that they could enjoy seeing the king. Oh, I look and see or brag about it. Those men, they saw the face of the king because they were constantly reading from the face of the king, the will of the king. And they carried out the will of the king just from seeing the face of the king. When Haman was killed, it was that Ethiopian servant there that the uh, king Ahasuerus didn't have to say, kill him. He read the face of the king and then he put a bag over his drape over his head and took him. So these men were trained to know the, what the king wanted just from seeing his face. I mean, the idea behind this saying to see the face of the king is that those men were ready at the will to do the will of the king just from reading his face. They just read his face. 
You know, the Bible talks about us seeing the face of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.